0: Thanks, Troy, so much. And this time of year, this month, we're always uh, stunned at how unusual and unexpected it is that our God works in, from our perspective, weird ways to provide through someone who's never given before or through a special gift, and so we look forward to how God is gonna provide as we finalize this ministry year, this budget year at the end of this month. Speaking of weird ways to do things. You know, even people at the top of their game often have weird ways to do things. You Just think of the sports world. Sometimes there's a golfer who has such a weird swing and no golf pro would ever tell anyone to swing that way. Sometimes there are baseball pitchers who have such a unique pitch that no one would ever suggest. No pitching coach would say that's how you should pitch, but they're at the top of their game. Then you think of professional basketball and how some people shoot free throws, and even some professionals who make it to the top of their game, they have a weird way sometimes of shooting a free throw. Watch this video. I oh, oh, the, yes. yeah, the underhand free uh, throw on a Waku shoots. He yeah. started doing that at Louisville last year. Yeah. It began with Big George Mike. Rick Barry started. Man enough to realize his limitations and try the underhand free throw shoot. Wow, that's what... uh, There you go. Going with the underhand. Seen it referred to as a granny style. (laughs) You know, the more traditional way of a free throw is like this, but some people, the granny shot works. Even some who made it all the way to the NBA found that to be the better way to make a shot. Sometimes we do things in weird ways even when we are at the top of our game. You know, when it comes to our God, from a human perspective, as we look at how God works in our lives, he works in weird ways. It's not in the Bible, but it's a saying we're all familiar with, God works in mysterious ways. And we're gonna talk about that as we look into the book of Esther for the next five weeks, starting this week. If you'd open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Esther. It's a book that appears in your paper version or hard copy of the Bible uh, just before you get to the Psalms in that area. So it's uh, there almost in the middle of your Bible. If you've got a Bible app on your iPhone or an iPad or something, just go in your Bible app to uh, Esther chapter 1 and verse one. Today we're going to talk about God works, from the human perspective, in weird ways as we look at the first two chapters of this 10-chapter book, the book of Esther. And as we go into these initial chapters of the book, I want us to understand this. God regularly uses the unusual and the unexpected to accomplish his very best in our lives. This is a hard lesson to learn as God's children that sometimes he uses the unusual and the unexpected to accomplish the very best in our lives, that which is good for bringing him glory and that is good in our lives and sometimes even good for others through our lives. The Lord Himself said He worked in weird ways. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Apostle Paul would say about our God that His unique way of operating is deep and and we can't even comprehend it he says in Romans chapter 11 verses 33 and 34 oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor who gives God advice he's so wise and understanding he doesn't need advice so as we open our Bibles to Esther chapter one and verse one, I want to help us to get some understanding of the background of this incredible book where we'll learn some very valuable lessons. As we open to chapter one of Esther, time frame wise, we're in 483, 483 BC. And uh, we will know that not only from what we read in the Bible here, it makes it obvious, but when we link it to what we know from a well-recorded, secular history of this time, it's 43 B.C. Now, if you go back 500 years prior to Esther, you're actually in the time of King David, 500 years before this, when Israel was in its golden era and he established Jerusalem as the capital. His son Solomon reigned and the nation was united and Solomon led during a time of, of peace and prosperity and then Solomon handed his, king off, his kingdom off to his son, Rehoboam and Rehoboam fumbled the ball, and there was civil unrest, and the 12 tribes that descended from Abraham were now split, and 10 tribes went and formed a northern kingdom, and two tribes went and formed the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom known as Israel, the southern kingdom known as Judah, Judah's capital, Jerusalem. And they were this way for generations, a divided monarchy of God's people, Israel. And many times in both nations, kings turned their back on God, worshipped pagan gods, got involved in all kinds of immorality. And God warns them through a succession of prophets that they better turn back to him or he's going to bring judgment. And in 722 B.C., God uses the pagan empire of the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. And they come in, invade, and pretty much destroy everything. You would think there'd be a warning to the southern kingdom. They better be faithful to God, but they continue to keep their backs turned to God and rebel against God. And so in 586 B.C., the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, they are the then known empire of the world, and they come in and they crush Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem, its capital. They take away the brightest and the best. We think of Daniel and his three friends, and they take them back to Babylon to make their culture better. And so we know this is the time of the captivity now, God had said through the prophets that if that judgment came, that final judgment, that blow against Jerusalem, that that judgment would last 75 years when there'd be no temple and no real functioning Jerusalem and everything would be desolate for 75 years. Now, remember that happened in 586. We opened to Esther. We're in 483. It's about 100 years. So if the 75 years had taken place, that means about 25 or 30 years of God's judgment would have begun to be lifted, and that's what happened. 25 to 30 years before this, Ezra and Zerubbabel leave, lead people back from the captivity, back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple, they rebuild the city. Soon after Esther, which is one of the, Esther is one of the last historic books of the Old Testament, soon after Esther, you have Nehemiah going back and he rebuilds the walls, but God had said, long ago, to Abraham, that he was going to make of Abraham a great nation, and through that nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. There'd be a Messiah who would come, not just be a Redeemer for his people, but as a Redeemer for all people. And so even in their waywardness and their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful to Israel. Even through their time of judgment, he has a plan for them, and he remains faithful. And in the book of Esther, we see that faithfulness continued. It's a unique book. We're in Esther as we open the book. We're in the Persian Empire. They took over for the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, two people groups that came and formed the the empire of the Persians. It was the largest empire the world had ever known. It stretched from India in the east all the way in the southeast Asia area to Ethiopia and Egypt in the west, northern Africa. The Greeks had kind of created a wall so that they couldn't really go into Western Europe, and that had been a frustration for the Persians for for decades. But it's a massive empire, and their capital was in Shushan, or Susa. And now, of course, you think of Jerusalem, and some have begun to go back, as I said. But really still, from what we know, at the time of the book of Esther, more people, more Jewish people, lived outside of Israel and Jerusalem that area that had been David's area then lived in that area that were Jewish. So 70 to 80% of Jewish people are still back in captivity and they've been generations in captivity and they're mixed in with the Persians. From Susa to Jerusalem is about 850 miles. It's a long span. Many of these people have been raised far from their homes and they were born in captivity. This is this massive empire that we opened the book of Esther to. And there's a key name here in the book. It's the emperor of the empire, Xerxes. He'd become emperor in 486 when his father Darius died. He became the emperor, and according to the opening verses here of Esther, he'd been emperor three years when we get to the book of Esther. Now, some of you may know Xerxes in our American pop culture from the 2006 movie 300. That movie was actually based on some historical facts, but it really was based on a fictionalized version of Xerxes, and this is the fictionalized version of him. This probably has nothing to do with what it was really like. So those of you who have seen 300 and you say, oh, I know Xerxes, I know what he looked like. You probably don't know what he looked like. This is our American version of Xerxes in our modern movies, but he was a powerful emperor. He was an evil man. And he conquered much of the world and he had just brought the Egyptians back under his control as we open the book of Esther. Esther, the name of the book here, is given for the main character of the book, a young Jewish woman named Esther. That's her Persian name and it means morning star. And the morning star is that last star that's still shining even when the moon is no longer out and the sun is coming up and, and it's one of the planets that we notice and people can notice it all over the world, but it, it kind of speaks of hope in most cultures. And Jesus is that morning star according to Scripture and, and Esther is named morning star in her Persian name, but her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle or it can mean the fragrance of myrtle. And she becomes the main character here of this book, and God is gonna use her to continue to be faithful to his people and protect them from annihilation as there's a plot to destroy the Jews later in this book. And then one final thing that is probably the most interesting thing about this book we gotta understand before we open to chapter one, verse one, and that is it never mentions God. All other books mention God in the Bible. 66 books in the Bible... 65 others mention God either directly or indirectly. There is no mention of God in these 10 chapters, directly or indirectly, but I think it's a part of God's beautiful plan and the inspiration of his scripture through the Holy Spirit that he gives us this book because it's what most of us experience in our lives, where it's hard for us to see God, but he is present in our lives. So we won't see this direct or even indirect reference to God in the book, but we are gonna see the evidence of God all through the 10 chapters, and even these first two chapters we're gonna look at today. So that gives you some background. If you'll open your Bible, if you've already there, keep it there, we're gonna be in Esther chapter one, verse one. I'm gonna be reading from the New Living Translation. Normally I read from the New International Version, but I have found that both translations are very good, and sometimes the New Living Translation when you read from it in narratives, I'm gonna read through these two chapters pretty much, when you read through it, you get the flow of the story a little stronger in the New Living Translation. I'll also mentioned I'm not using the Bible Project introduction video as I've used before. It's about nine minutes and I think it can be helpful, so we have posted that on our social media and you can find that or you can just Google Bible Project Esther and you'll find the YouTube video that's an excellent overview of these 10 chapters. But let's look at Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Now remember, we're looking for the unusual and expected ways God works, but he still works his best in those weird ways. Esther 1.1. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. Now I'm gonna read some of these verses and they won't appear on the screen. I'll summarize some of these verses but I'm gonna bring other verses up on the screen so you can see the flow and content. So verse three, in the third year of his reign, which is 483 as we understand it even from secular history, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. He's throwing a big party For all the important people of the 127 provinces, he's throwing this elaborate, lavish, generous party. Notice verse four. The celebration lasted, get this, 180 days. How many of you have ever gone to a six-month-long party? (laughs) This guy knows how to party. Now we know from secular history, this feast is actually mentioned by Herodotus in secular history, and... This was not just a party. Actually, during the day, he's making plans to invade the Greeks and destroy them. His father had tried. He'd made some attempts. It never worked. They were blocking them from expanding the empire. And so he's using these six months. that through the day, he's using generals and military leaders. He's getting fundraising together to get all the resources they need in these six months to amass the army and the warships they need to go after Greece and destroy it. To take Athens, to take Salamis and, and other major cities. It says it was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. Xerxes is flaunting and he's trying to rally the troops. He's trying to get everybody together. So by day, they're planning, by night, they're partying. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people. One more party. Six months wasn't enough. But now he's including the greatest of the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Then you get this description of how beautiful the garden was, how generous he was with wine. The seven days, not just now, are the leaders of the provinces and the military leaders, but now he's getting everybody involved because he wants the whole country to be rallied together to go and destroy the Greeks. He's trying to show off his might, his power, so that everyone will follow his leadership into battle, and they'll destroy the Greeks and overwhelm them. And we read in verse eight, by edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. There was no limit in these seven days. At the same time, Queen Vashti, now I gotta stop. Queen Vashti, this is the first time she's mentioned. She's a Persian queen. She is the queen to Xerxes. But what we know from history, and we'll see here even in the book, Xerxes also had concubines, young women who were kept just for the outlet of his lustful pleasure, 400 he kept at a time. But his wife, the queen, would not be like a slave, would not be used by Xerxes or others just for sexual pleasure. and he might allow generals or great victors in to be a part of the concubines and taking them and Using them and abusing them. But Vashti, the way the law of the Medes and Persians were written, and when they wrote a law, not even the emperor could undo that very law. He'd have to write a different law to counter that law. He couldn't just willy nilly say, I'm the king. That's different than most empires. So the law was above the emperor, but they were the ones who made the law. He'd made a law that, yes, women in That kind of concubine status could be treated like slaves or servants and sex objects. Noblemen could have a wife and then have a bunch of concubines. He has a wife named Vashti and he has 400 concubines. Well, he gave to these wives of the nobility, to his own wife, dignity and autonomy to make decisions for themselves. he He would not allow anyone else to touch her. It was to be his lifelong companion was to be a different intimacy even though he would still be using his concubines there was a status given to noble women who were considered wives so we read that the same time he's throwing the seven-day party for all the people Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes he's she's throwing a party probably for all the concubines and all the women associated with him so there's another party going on on the seventh day of the feast, so it's been six months and now a week long, so it's the seventh day, the last day of the feast, when, the king, when king Xerxes was in high spirits, because of the wine, get high spirits here, means he's drunk out of his gourd, <laughs> all right? He's way beyond the legal limit. He told the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. Now it's interesting, you notice he has eunuchs who are going to go communicate with her These are men who could not fulfill physical intimacy because of the way they had been um, taken care of, (laughs) say it that way. And isn't it interesting, he's gonna use these kind of men to go communicate to his wife, so these are the kind of men that take care of his wife, these are the kind of men who take care of his harem, his concubines, so that no one can take advantage of any of his women. But he says to them, go and get Queen Vashti and have her put on the royal crown on her head, He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty for she was a very beautiful woman. Now, the Hebrew implies here, it leans toward this idea that he says, hey, go get Queen Vashti. This has been six months of preparation, celebration, showing my power, my strength, my virility. And now I want my queen to come in and it implies coming in only wearing her crown. Nothing else. And she's going to be the exclama- exclamation point to this whole preparation for war against the Greeks. And she's going to come in, and I'm going to show what a man I am by showing off the most beautiful woman in the world, my wife, Vashti. Verse 12. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. You like that? She refused to come. She's not going to be in an undignified situation in front of a bunch of drunk men. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. He's ticked off. She's supposed to be the final thing that shows how powerful and strong a man he is and how he's going to lead the Persians and destroy the Greeks. And she makes him a laughingstock. She refuses to come. So he says, and men, here is the most beautiful woman in the world, my wife, the queen, Vashti. Nothing. Again, here is the most beautiful, again, nothing. He's ticked. So he gets his advisors together. We read, and he says in verse 15, what must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders, properly sent through his eunuchs? See, he's given her so much autonomy that she's not violated any laws. She's ticked him off, but the laws are set up that she can say no. He set those laws up. Now he's saying, okay, what can I do to get rid of her, and what can I do to change this situation so it doesn't happen again? And there's some discussion. In verse 19, we kind of get the summary of this. So if it pleased the king, the advisors say... We suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes. You've got to put her aside, but the law won't let you kill her, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives." By the way, this isn't the kind of mutual submission, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord that's described in Ephesians 5 at all. This is now saying all women, even your noble wives that used to be given autonomy and dignity and independence and protected by the laws, all women will now be equal to concubines. And they have no say. So we read the king and his nobles thought this made good sense. Wonder how the women felt. Verse 22 He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, and proclaimed that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. Now, one application of this message, men, is not to go home and say whatever you please. Don't misunderstand this. This was the enslavement and subjugation of women in a horrible, evil way. It's his response. Now what happens next before we get to chapter 2, actually there are about four years of time according to chapter 2 verse 16, there's about four years of time between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Actually the whole book of 10 chapters actually equals 10 years. But between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's about three and a half to four years where he does get his troops. History tells us that in these three and a half to four years, he gets his troops, 360,000 of them, 700 to 800 ships, and he attacks the Greeks. And he's got twice as many soldiers. He's got twice as many ships. He's so confident he's gonna win the battle that he actually takes Athens and takes other cities, but he's gotta get Salamis, And if he can get Salamis, he's destroyed the Greeks. And so he's got all these armies. He's got all these ships. And he gets this throne brought to him. And he sits on a hill to watch as his ships and his troops destroy the Greeks. But the opposite happens before his eyes. Secular history says that he curses in the name of Vashti when his troops lose. He thinks that she's the one who caused all this because he had built everything up and she's the one who jinxed this for him. And it's one of the most humiliating losses in world history in terms of battles. He loses terribly, and he comes home after three and a half years, and in the fourth year, we read in chapter two, so it's been four years since he deposed Vashti, probably took some concubines with him off to war for these three and a half years, but he's not had a wife, so we read in verse one of chapter two, but after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made, so his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. And we know from secular history that they went out and fought 400. Apparently he always kept a harem of 400. When he'd get a new harem together of 400, Xerxes, he would often kill or destroy or banish the other 400 before. He was always looking for the next batch of young virgins, and it's time to do that. But through these 400, he is going to be intimate with them for a night, one by one, until he finds his queen. Terrible, evil man. We read in verse 4, after that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Ashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Then we read about Mordecai, a Jewish man who lives in the fortress of Susa in verse 5. His parents had, or grandparents had been taken captive and brought out of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Now they find themselves in Susa under the Persians. We read in verse seven about Mordecai. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, that's fragrant uh, myrtle, which uh, is her Jewish name, who was also called Esther, Morning Star, her Persian name. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So Mordecai is her adoptive father. Her cousin raises her like a daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther along with other women, verse eight says, they're brought in and they're gonna be given beauty treatments, spa treatments, and preparation for 12 months before they will go one by one in with the king for night and he will find his queen. 12 months, why 12 months? Most scholars believe it was his way of making sure none of them were pregnant so that he could know anybody born to them after this 12 months were his kids and there could be no paternity suits, no DNA tests. This is the old world way of making sure of that. And so even even it says Esther is so well received that the guy in charge, the eunuch in charge of the harem, gives her special maids and the best room in the place, and she's such an outstanding individual. But Mordecai has told her, don't tell them you're Jewish. There was so much anti-Semitism within the Persian Empire, the Jews were like a plague to them. He says, don't tell them you're a, a Jewish woman. We read in verse 10, Esther had not told anyone of her nationality. She's now among these 400, preparing for this year. She didn't tell of her family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai, her adoptive father, would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. He's coming up to the fence and he's saying, you okay? How are they treating you? Now think about this. She's a young woman, young virgin woman, among 400 other women. For 12 months, they're waiting for the day. One by one, they will go into the king. And if they're not chosen, they will be a part of his concubine of 400 or 399. And he can use them whenever he wants. He can let any man or men he wants to go in and use them. They will just become, for the rest of their lives, objects, objects of men's lust, lusts. Think about that for Esther. Think about her heart cry to God in the midst of that. And then we read that one by one, they were brought in before the king and each of them could pick jewelry and clothes from that were kept there in the harem and then they would go in to the king and if he did not pick them, they'd be relegated to being a concubine to be used and abused for the rest of their lives. Verse 15, Esther was the daughter of Abihail, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. She was different than the other women had gone in before her. We don't know if it was 50, 100 that had gone in before her night after night and had been rejected, Jewish history and tradition says that the other women gained jewelry and costuming and clothing that made them look like prostitutes. But that Haggai had said, no, he's looking for a partner in life and you're beautiful, so just wear this. And he told her what to go in with to Xerxes. Well, we read in verse 16, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. So it's about 879 or so. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Ashti. To celebrate the occasion, there's a great banquet again. They're partying again. All kinds of officials will come. He gives away generous gifts Uh, and all the young women who didn't get picked are transferred to the new harem to be used and abused, the text says. Verse 20, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions just as she did when she lived in his home. Can you imagine the experience of this young woman and what she was in the middle of? What if they found out she was Jewish? What would he do to her then? How would, he be, how would she be treated? Would she be regula- relegated to being lower than even a concubine in his harem? From these two chapters, I think we see the evidence of God's invisible hand and that God works in weird ways. I want to give you five observations from these two chapters quickly here. Number one He works, God works obscurely when we want him to work obviously. He works obscurely when we want him to work obviously. I wanna say to God, I wanna be clear, Lord, that I can see everything you're doing. I would really like him to make everything really plain and really clear about my finances, my health, my kids, my family, my marriage, everything in my life. I want it to be obvious when God is working. But we have to realize that God is often working obscurely. God often does his boldest work in the quietest places and in the quietest ways. That's not easy. For Esther, she's not gonna be able to see the clear hand of God because he works obscurely. Charles Adden Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken, and when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Maybe you're going through something right now and you say, I just can't see God in this. It's been been a long time. Maybe it's been 12 months like what Esther went through. Maybe it's been years and you say, I just can't see God's hand in this. As we go into this book of Esther over the next five weekends, can I encourage you as a follower of Jesus just to pray once every day, whether maybe when you're driving to work or when you're showering in the morning or brushing your teeth or something, find a place every day this week where you say to God, God... When I can't see your hand, teach me, help me to trust your heart. When I can't see your hand, teach me, help me to see your heart, to know that you love me and you have my best in store. Even when it's unexpected and unusual in the ways in which you work, let me see your hand. Ask God to do that. Each day this week in preparation for our continued journey in this book where we see the fingerprints and evidence of the invisible hand of God. Secondly, he works providentially when we want him to work painlessly. I don't know about you, but I would really like that whatever God's working out in my life, whatever he's working for my best, it would be absent of any pain or discomfort. (laughs) Right? I don't want any pain or discomfort. Can this just be completely painless? No discomfort, no sleepless nights, no uncertainty. But he works providentially. That means God often uses bad things to accomplish good stuff. That's hard for us to process as God's children. He often uses bad things to accomplish good stuff. How can he do that? How can he use the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it, to accomplish good stuff? Well, it has to do with God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is his attribute, his character, his characteristic of who he is. He is sovereign over us. He's sovereign over everything. As the creator and sustainer, and king of kings and lord of lords. His sovereignty is this, he is always in control of everything and everyone everywhere, period. There's not a speck of dust at any point in history and time that is in any way not under the sovereign control of our God. He always is in control of everything and everyone everywhere. But he works out his sovereignty in his providence. That's how his sovereignty is worked out, in his providence. God's providence is this. He uses what he causes and allows to accomplish his eternal purposes. He's using a six-month drunken party. He's using an attack against the Greeks. He's using a woman who refused to have her dignity destroyed. He's using the gathering of a harem, he's using a Jewish woman named Esther. He's using and what he causes and allows to accomplish his eternal purposes. And his internal, eternal purposes are always about his glory, my good, and the good of others. See, our greatest peace comes when we completely rest in God's sovereignty and providence, even when his best plan is far from our first choice. Tell you what, when you say, God, I'm going to trust you because you are sovereign. In your providence, you know what is best for me. I wish it was painless, but I would trust your providential, sovereign hand more than a painless experience. His best plan is rarely our first, second, or third choice. (laughs) How many of you had a conversation in some way, somehow this week about Vin Scully? Just anybody had a conversation, yeah, yeah. People telling stories about what they remember, when they met him, when they were listening to a broadcast, when a game, and who he was. His wife, Sandra, was a part of Calvary weekly during the 11 o'clock service. She went to be with Jesus a little over a year and a half ago, and I participated in her memorial. Ben would attend Calvary around Easter and Christmas with her. He attended a different church, but on Christmases and Easter's, they would go to each other's church for services, and spend time together on those special holidays. I knew Sandra well, knew she loved Jesus and was trusting in Jesus. I knew Vin enough to know he was trusting in Jesus and is with Sandra, with the Lord. He made his faith in the grace of Jesus clear to me on several occasions. I had some interaction with him, but this week I've heard stories about his childhood. I've heard stories about how he lost his first wife and how she died and I, I, I knew about his son Michael and how he died at a young age. and. I realized that here's this man we're all talking about, and we're all telling stories of his little touches of kindness, even when a photo was taken with him, how he was gracious to someone, how he was a gentleman, an honest man, a, a caring man, and we all could just tell that by the broadcasts. But that kind of life was shaped by a lot of hardship, a lot of pain. I look at my own background, raised in a home with a mother with a lot of mental health problems. And I said, wow, that was awful, that was terrible. But I can look back, and often we look back and we see the hand of God and how even in the pain he was doing something providentially. And I look back and I say, you know what? But God was developing a pastor's heart in that home. Would I want anyone else to go through that? No, except maybe my brother. I'd like him maybe to go back and go through it again. I don't know. No, I don't even want him to go back and go through that. And part of the reason I'm a pastor is I wanna walk with people when they're going through the brokenness of life and sometimes it's not resolved, this side of eternity. And how do we walk through that pain in God's providence and trusting him even when we can't see his hand? God often uses bad things to accomplish good stuff. Peace comes, we completely rest in God's sovereignty and providence even when his best plan is far from our first choice. Maybe you look back and you see things. Maybe you're in the middle of it and you don't know why you're going through this pain. God is using this for his glory and your good ultimately. Leads us to the third observation about how God works in weird ways. The third way he works, he works patiently when we want him to work promptly. He works patiently when we want him to work promptly. We often say, not just God work now, we say, God worked yesterday. God did this prayer, I really needed this Yesterday. But can I say this? You learn through the book of Esther and through the various stories of Scripture that God will never be too early. He'll never be too late. He'll be right on time to accomplish His perfect will in your life. God often uses a lot of time to meet our immediate needs. God often uses a lot of of time to meet our immediate needs. He is patient. He is patient but he often uses a lot of time to meet our immediate needs. As a matter of fact, God is patient, Peter tells us, in that he is waiting to bring judgment to earth, to bring a new heavens and a new earth and finalize all of human history, a new kingdom under his son's reign. He's waiting patiently so more people can come to Jesus. Maybe you've heard me share about how God loves you and sent Jesus to die and to be buried and to be raised for you so that through faith in Christ you can have a relationship with God now and forever. And you've been putting it off. God is patient in this season, calling you to himself. Make today the day you accept Christ as your Savior. If I can help you, I'll be in the lobby. Our care team will be down front. We can help you and Answer any questions you have about what it means to know Jesus. God is patiently calling you to come to Jesus. If you're joining us in the room or online, and you don't have time to stop by and see me or right here, but you want to ask some questions or want us to celebrate with you today's the day except Jesus, text the name Jesus to the number below me on the screen and we'll send you some resources. And we'll follow up personally. But part of God's patience right now and why judgment hasn't come on earth is he's patiently, Peter says, calling us to repentance and to come to faith in Jesus. God often, as I said, uses a lot of time to meet our immediate needs. You see, he's working in the waiting. For Esther, those 12 months of beauty treatments and spa treatments, it sounds wonderful, but remember the preparation is for one night and you have one chance to either be chosen as the queen and have some sense of wholeness to your life or you're gonna be forever a concubine at the will and determination of the lusts of men. But God was working in her waiting and he is sovereign over us working in our waiting. Fourthly, he works justly when we want him to work judgmentally. He works justly when we want him to work judgmentally. I don't know about you, but there are times I just want fire and brimstone to come down on certain people. You know, we think, we know what you should be doing to that person. That person should not be getting those successful moments in their life, God. We just want judgment, can you imagine how many times Mordecai probably said, I remember when you turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt, Lord, protect my cousin, my daughter, and turn Xerxes into a pillar of salt or bring down that fire and brimstone like you did on, for Sodom and Gomorrah. But God often uses the arrogance of the powerful to meet the needs of the powerless. It's almost like divine judo, this book. It's a book of reversals. Just when you think, So much evil and so much power and the powerful are destroying the powerless. God does this divine judo and all of a sudden the powerless are the ones who, in the end of this book, come out victorious. He works justly when we want him to work judgmentally. Sometimes God uses the worst in some to accomplish his best in others. The worst in your boss, the worst in your spouse, the worst in your neighbor, the worst in whoever. He may be using that to accomplish his best in you. Our friend John Erickson Tata says it this way, God often permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. God often permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. Just think of the cross. That was a place of hate, and God used it in his sovereignty and providence to accomplish what he loves. Maybe today you need to be reminded that sometimes God uses bad stuff and bad people and bad things in his sovereignty for our best, for his glory and our good and the good of others. One way to do that is through the Lord's Supper communion. The elements of the Lord's Supper remind us of the cross that was a place of hate that God used to demonstrate his great love. We have communion available in the chapel, prayer chapel that's just outside these doors on the other side of that wall where the Christian flag is over here. You can go there after the service to take communion, be reminded of God's love. You can pray with a pastor there if you have a need. Fifth and finally, he works independently. He works independently when we want him to work collaboratively. I wish God would sort of just work with me on the plan. Hey, Lord, you know, this person, you could just kind of push them to the side, please. And these circumstances, I'd rather go this way than that way. And what do you think, Lord? Let's just kind of make some compromises here in this journey. We want him to work collaboratively with us as we move forward. But he is the independent, sovereign God who knows better than we could ever know what is best for our lives ultimately, even when it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to Esther while she's sitting waiting to be used by this man and her future will be determined determined, she doesn't have a chance to collaborate with God, but God is weaving something she can't even see with his invisible hand. You see, God always works his perfect plan apart from anyone else's best ideas. Your collaboration with God would not improve his plan by one little bit. My collaboration with God wouldn't improve his plan one little bit. Can I remind you just to say, Lord... When I can't see your hand, help me to trust your heart. Yeah, I mentioned at the beginning, here's the thought we need to leave here with. God regularly uses the unusual and the unexpected to accomplish his very best in our lives. They say that off the coast of Greenland, the ice flows with icebergs and little chips of ice and things. They flow in such a way that you sometimes will see some of them flowing one way and others flowing this way. And it's a strange thing to watch because you just can't understand why that's happening, why some are flowing one way and others are flowing the other way. And some will change direction while others just keep going. And you just look and it just doesn't make any sense. But science says that if you look underneath what you see on the surface, you see what's happening because there is an ocean current that the big icebergs that look huge underwater but may look small on top, there is an ocean current that is driving them constantly in the direction and that it's wind that is driving stuff in different directions on the surface. But even that stuff that looks like it's going the opposite way is being pulled in that same ocean current in one direction. And our lives often look like chaos, like the circumstances don't make any sense and they're going in different directions on the surface. But underneath the invisible hand of God is working what is best for his glory and our good. And if you're in circumstances where you're really struggling, or even just to open your heart for what God wants to teach you in this series, just pray every day this week, God, when I can't see your hand, teach me to trust your heart that the current underneath is taking me in the best direction I could ever go as I walk with you. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for the story of Esther. While some are critical that it doesn't talk about you directly, I think we're blessed to have a book that helps us understand how you work obscurely. You work providentially. You work patiently. And Father, I believe you don't need my collaboration with you to make and shape my life. You need me to walk in obedience to you, to walk in conjunction with you, so I could be more aware and sensitive to what you are doing. I pray for those who can't see your hand right now. May they trust your heart. May they know that you're working out what is best for your glory and their good and ultimately the good of others. Teach us to understand that you're sovereign over us, even that you're working in our waiting, that you're working out in your love the best for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.